According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, our text is John chapter 8. We have been in this portion of uh, John for a number of weeks now, episode number 4, in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. This is the final section in the overall uh, harmony of the Gospels until we arrive at the Passion Week. <clears throat> so um, the Passion Week, of course, begins with what is commonly called Palm Sunday. I refer to it as Palm Monday. I prefer to have uh, the Monday entry without a missing Wednesday. The, the days are pretty well documented in the final days leading up to the cross. And so you either have a absent Wednesday somehow, or you slide the crucifixion to Thursday, or you, uh, you recognize that Palm Sunday is actually a Palm Monday that, that gives you a Friday crucifixion with no mysterious missing Wednesday that the Lord evidently took a day off to go catch a movie or maybe take in a round of golf or something with the disciples. I don't know what they were doing. No, I don't. Well, we'll deal with all that in time in the Passion Week. But what I'm saying is that this last Judean and Prean ministry is the final section we'll deal with prior to the uh, the Passion Week itself. This is episode four. And uh, the title uh, actually comes now to the paragraph we're ready for today where he says, You are of your father, the devil. And we've had growing um, controversy. We've had growing uh, dissatisfaction. Every time he opens his mouth to teach, his critics are getting more and more frustrated, more and more confrontational. They uh, have already tried to have him arrested in the process of this feast and uh, have been unsuccessful in that. So, the, you know, that's the nature of it. When the cosmos, when an unbeliever is searching for happiness in the cosmos system and he's not finding it and he's finding getting more and more frustration along the way, it, uh, it just, the darkness gets darker and that's, uh, and that's where they are. All right, we're going to pick up our reading today with material out of verses 34 and following. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. All right. Well, speaking of sin, let's take time for silent prayer and make sure our sins have been confessed and forgiven and we're prepared for teaching. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word and the privilege we have, Father, to assemble together. We're missing uh, a fair number of our folks here this morning. You know where they are. We ask, Father, for traveling mercy, safety on the road, and, and a return back to us in your plan, in your timing, uh, when your purpose is complete for the maximum glory of your Son. Father, set aside this time now. Set aside distractions. Take every thought captive. Uh, open the eyes of our understanding. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a total of six points of study that we're gleaning out of this, and I didn't jot down the slide number, so I'll just start taking guesses here. Um, point one, Jesus repeats his departure message from chapter 7, but intensifies it with what we uh, titled the soteriological rebuke. I'm leaving and you're going to hell. Uh, they didn't exactly like that, but that was the truth of it. Secondly, by turning his departure warning soteriological, interest was sparked to investigate more fully who he actually was. And um, you may find similar techniques are useful if in conversation you find that maybe there is not an interest in discussing anything in the spiritual realm. Then go ahead and keep it in the spiritual realm, but turn it into a salvation issue uh, in, in terms of the eternal destiny. And um, they may claim that they don't have an interest in talking about spiritual matters, but the, the fact that they're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire may change their minds on, on uh, what they are interested in or not interested in, uh, in discussing. Thirdly, missed it, there we go. Jesus' message of truth and freedom was meant specifically for the believing ones within the crowd. He's still talking to a largely unbelieving audience, but a remnant, a group, a fair number really, uh, we're told in verse 30, many came to believe in him. So in, in verses 31 and following, he, he's still 
in the same public venue addressing the same multitudes. However, his message is now focused and particularly intended for those with a saving faith. Those, in other words, that are born again with the ears to hear. Much of what we deal with today is going to focus on the ears to hear and why it is that they cannot hear. Why they, they hear his spoken word, but they are not with, with their earthly ears, but they are not apprehending his uh, spiritual message because they don't have the spiritual ears to hear. Which brings us now to point four. The freedom Jesus spoke of is the daily freedom from personal sin enslavement. The freedom Jesus spoke of is the daily freedom from personal sin enslavement. This is verses 34 through 41, or 41a, the first part of verse 41, where it concludes with, you are doing the deeds of your father. I went ahead and split that verse in half. We'll pick up the second part of that verse in the next point where they respond to him in their little hissy fit about fornication. Again, point four, the freedom Jesus spoke of is the daily freedom from personal sin enslavement. And this is what's missed by unbelievers, of course, who throw this verse around as if it meant something to them. But even by believers who throw this verse around uh, with a misunderstanding that this applies to uh, a salvation event. That at the moment you place your faith in Christ and believe in Jesus Christ, then you're free. He delivers you from the bondage of the slave market of sin. Now, we accept, of course, that that is true. At the moment of your salvation, you are delivered from the slave market of sin and you are free positionally and you're free eternally and you're free uh, in any way you want to think of it there in salvation terms. Unfortunately, in this message, Jesus is not speaking to them in salvation terms. He's speaking to them in post-salvation terms. In other words, he's speaking to them in edification terms. When we break down uh, in particular uh, messages, you have gospel messages and you have teaching messages. Or like Ralph Braun described it, evangelism content and edification content. And when you take those uh, those particular realms, you recognize that an evangelism message has as its primary intended audience unbelievers. But an edification message has as its primary audience believers. In fact, an unbeliever can't even hear it. An unbeliever can't understand it. They're not equipped to understand it. And when you break down evangelism versus edification content, I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, you realize from verse 31, he is speaking to those Jews who had believed him. So this is not evangelism information communicated to unbelievers, such as the the fact that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. No, this is not information whereby they can respond to it in faith and become saved. They are saved. This is information now where he's saying, all right, you're believers now. You need to do something about the Christian way of life. And that's going back to uh, to point three that we were dealing with and the first sub point a that um, believing in Christ turns an unbeliever into a believer this is the work of evangelism but abiding in the word is what turns a believer into a true disciple that's the content of what he's trying to get across here if you abide in my word then you are truly disciples of mine he's taking brand new believers just got saved and saying all right now You've got, you guys have got to become disciples. You guys have got to become disciples. And so this is a message designed for brand new believers. Don't lose track of that when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This is a future freedom for believers with a past completed salvation. So don't say, don't blend the ideas that this salvation, this freedom is somehow associated with getting saved. It's not. This is a freedom that is available to people who already are saved, who then need to progress to work out their salvation of fear and trembling. They need to progress into the growth pattern of uh, abiding in Christ, abiding in the word and growing in grace and knowledge. And so the freedom that's spoken here is the freedom from personal sin enslavement. He defines that in these following verses when they say, how do you say we will become free? Now, they're acting in anger and bitterness, but he is going to answer their question. He answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. 
So just because you got saved this morning doesn't mean you're done sinning. You will still commit sinful deeds. All right, and when you commit those deeds, you are functioning under voluntary enslavement. That's what we're going to study today. Personal sin enslavement. Now hold your finger there, and I'm going to relate this over. We have a, a benefit of being able to correlate this to a recent class in 1 Corinthians. So when you look back to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I want to show you something here. Because this freedom and this use of sozo for deliverance has a, uh, a um, past, present, and future application as we often describe it. 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, you all, uh, which also you received, in which also you stand. So preached is in the past, received is past completed, and standing is present. You are presently standing in the faith, in that is, in the truth of this gospel message. And then by which also you are presently ongoing being saved. If, or since you do, hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And this, as we taught it in 1 Corinthians 15, is the ongoing present salvation, not the past salvation that delivered us from darkness into life and provided for us eternal life and, and uh, granted unto us uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We call that our phase one salvation. That was the old terminology that Pastor Theme had years and years ago. Phase one salvation is where uh, you, you come to faith in Christ and receive eternal life. But then the phase two salvation is the ongoing work of, of God in delivering us, as you see on the screen, from the daily, uh, the daily freedom from the personal sin and enslavement. We need the ongoing salvation in the temptations for sin. And then ultimately the phase three salvation is our promotion to glory. Gary Williams got to experience that already earlier this year, and our turn hasn't yet uh, come up. But that phase three salvation will happen at physical death or rapture where we will be delivered from the presence of sin. See, phase one, we're delivered from the power, of, from the penalty of sin. We're no longer under that condemnation, the penalty of sin, where the wages of sin is death. The penalty is gone with phase one salvation. The power of sin is what we're delivered from in phase two salvation because he provides us with the Holy Spirit, provides us with the word. We have the empowerment to walk in the light. And then phase three salvation, where we're saved from the presence of sin. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin are the three facets of the work of sozo. Those are the uses of sozo in the Greek New Testament. Which is interesting because more uses are focused on our daily walk, such as right here in John 8, than there are that are focused on the phase one, uh, believing unto eternal life. Okay, so this is the freedom. John 8, 34. The promise comes in... Uh, Earlier, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's in verse 32. But then when they ask, well, what are you talking about? We're not slaves. He says, yes, you are. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And so because we're still sinners by practice, we need this salvation on a daily basis. And that's what he's offering them. All right, point A. I'll give you time to write this down and then we'll look at some verses. This is main point four, sub point A. The volitional decision to commit a personal sin. What is that? Well, this point tells you what it is. The volitional decision to commit a personal sin is a voluntary personal subjection of slavery to the sin nature. That's what it is. The volitional decision to commit a personal sin is a voluntary personal subjection of slavery to the sin nature. The sin nature that was crucified when Christ was crucified. The one that we're to consider dead. We resurrect it every single time. We say, yep, yeah, I want to be your slave. Not only do we have John 8.34, we're also going to examine Romans 6. A lengthy section of Romans 6, from verse 1 to verse 19, if you want to put a finer point to it. 
Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, 11 through 14, 16 through 19. Those are the stretches we'll be examining here this morning. So we have John 8, 34, Romans 6, 1 and 2, 11, and 14, 11 through 14, and 16 through 19. We're also going to take time to take a look at 2 Peter 2, 18 through 20. See, Paul wasn't the only one that wrote about the sin battle. Peter wrote about it. Peter struggled with it. We'll even take the time to go way back to Exodus and remind ourselves what slavery was about. The different types of slavery. And when we talk about our slavery as unbelievers, that's the slavery we're born into. But when we talk about slavery in personal sin, that's the slavery we volunteer for because we like it. We'll address that. A continuation of the point I'll speak to here in a moment because we're going to relate this back to John 3.21. But let's let that go for the moment. Let's just pick up, first of all, on these first issues. All right. Everyone who commits sin. Everyone who practices sin. All right. This uh, obviously is the... Uh, the only option that an unbeliever has. An unbeliever cannot practice truth. Let's go ahead and get the rest of the point. Practicing sin is contrasted with practicing truth. And practicing truth is characteristic of spiritual birth. If you hold your finger in John 8, let's glance back to John 3. And we find terminology here that's inescapably parallel to John 8. Everyone who commits sin. You've got the participle. And then if some of my second-year Greek, stu- uh, second Greek students were here this morning. I take the time to spotlight these because they're learning participles last week in this. But since they're not present, I'll let it go. Uh, but in John 3, 21, he who practices the truth. He who practices the truth. Now, there is not a single unbeliever who can do this. This is a feature of of uh, the regenerate capacity. An unbeliever can do good deeds in terms of human good, but he's not practicing the truth. He's practicing a variation of the lie that appears to be consistent with truth, but he's not practicing the truth. All right, let's uh, back up a little bit here. This is in the God so loved the world section. We should be very familiar with John 3. But here is the judgment. All right, this is the judgment. The light has come into the cosmos, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. This is the the, the native nature of total depravity. Mankind, unregenerate mind, thrives on the darkness, because the darkness is consistent with their nature. Their environment is consistent with their nature. They, They take to it like a fish to water, right? Like a duck to a pond, or whatever else you want to use. That's their nature. They are by nature children of wrath. They are by nature darkened in their understanding. And so a cosmos of darkness is a comfort to them. It is, it is their natural environment. Light, wow, well, that's like a fish out of water at that point because they're not attuned to the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And it's interesting, even though their darkened nature is compatible with their darkened environment, it is incompatible with their, uh, with their soul's conscience because their soul is made in the image and nature of God and, and uh, there's still a guilt and a fear and an internal witness that testifies to their, to their issue here. So they hate the light. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. For a believer, of course, it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. So we have a parallel of language with Ha Poyon, the practitioner, the doer, the one who does. Uh, here in John 3, it's the one who does the light, the one who practices the truth. In John 8, it's the one who practices sin. Now, only believers can practice the truth and walk in the light. However, believers and unbelievers both can practice sin. As we uh, have said already, uh, just because you're saved doesn't mean you've stopped sinning. You still commit sins and will commit sins until you uh, depart this world. Now, back to, Rome, back to uh, 
John 8. Let's uh, make this clear now. What, what we're doing is we are submitting ourselves for slavery. And John in this gospel is not the only one who takes this approach. We have Paul very extensively describing it in Romans 6. So join me there. Romans chapter 6. Remember your outline of Romans. Romans 1, you've got the Gentile unbelievers and all of the glory details of, of immoral depravity, from adultery to homosexuality to murder and all the real obvious sin issues of immoral depravity. You get to chapter 2, you've got moral depravity and religious depravity, and by the time you get to Romans 3, you realize, guess what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if your background is a is a Gentile uh, lascivious background or a Jewish uh, uh, ascetic background or what have you, all human uh, effort falls short. So if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what's the answer? Salvation by grace through faith. Now you have chapters 4 and 5. So you can just think your way through these chapters in Romans. Gentile rebellion in chapter 1, Jewish rebellion in chapter 2, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, chapter 3, justification by grace through faith, chapters 4 and 5. So now that we're saved, there's no more problems, right? Romans chapter 6. And we have Romans 6, 7, and 8 that is a very practical exhortation for what do we do now that we're saved and recognizing that we still have a sin problem we're fighting with. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You know, perish the thought. How could we do this? And yet we do it all the time. Do you not know? Now notice, died to sin. Died to sin. That's positional. That is, in terms of our identification, that is the reality of it. But it was not literal. You and I were not literally hanging on a cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. And so you and I are not literally dead to sin. In our human experience, we're still here in the 21st century where we've been. All right. Comes down to our attitude. So it describes this, uh, we've all been baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. So just as he identified with us to take our place, we identify with him. The identity is, is reciprocal. We identify with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension. And so that should be our attitude. That should be our new walk in the, to the glory of the Father, to, uh, walking in the newness of life. Now let's skim on down to verse 11. Even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the reality is that we are dead to sin. But the command is that we consider ourselves dead to sin. So why does God command us to consider ourselves in accordance with what is actually the reality? Because that reality is positional, not experiential. We have to consider ourselves. We have to, in other words, we have to match up our experience with our reality. But that's a, that's a mental attitude battle. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. And verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Some pastors believe that the sin nature actually is attached to the soul. I reject that. I believe the sin nature is a corruption of the body itself, which is why when we leave our body behind, uh, we leave our sin nature behind. Our soul gets to heaven. There's no sin in heaven. So I don't believe the soul, the, the sin nature is attached to the soul. I believe the sin nature is attached to the body. In fact, I believe it infests every cell, every chromosome, every facet of our DNA is corrupted by the sin nature. So uh, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not let it. Do not let it. If you commit a sin, you let it happen. You didn't have to. You can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. He didn't. Your sin nature uh, offered it up, laid it out there as a tasty temptation that maybe the devil or a demon or some fallen angel, maybe they assisted They've got a pretty good dossier on you. They know what your weaknesses are, your failures, your background. And, uh, you know, they know how to set the table for your downfall. 
But the point is, you let it happen, and you didn't have to, because the provision has been made. God has provided all things necessary for life and godliness. When it says, do not let sin reign, that's a command. And when you commit a sin, what have you just done? You have just let it reign. As the point says, you made a voluntary personal subjection of slavery to the sin nature. You bent the knee. You bent the knee. You chose to be a slave. So do not let it. And, furthermore, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. This is a presentation you make. Not only do you submit for slavery, but you then bend the knee as a feudal uh, knight to his feudal lord and say, uh, here I am, send me. I'm yours. But present yourselves to God. Now, present yourselves to God is a command, but it's a command that a lot of people don't pay attention to. There's a lot more to the Christian way of life in terms of not sinning than just simply not sinning. I don't know how long it took to figure that one out. You know, it's more than just not sinning. It's more than just, oh, well, don't don't do this, right? Don't sin, don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't fornicate. You know, you could be a you could do nothing and and not do those things. But God doesn't tell us to do nothing. God tells us to present our members as slaves unto righteousness. And there is actually work to be done. So present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 13, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. We have provision. You know, it's interesting. Under law, they were commanded not to do the same thing we're, not, we're commanded not to do. They had all the same do's and don'ts, right? The same law. Adultery was wrong in the Old Testament. It's wrong in the New Testament. But we have resources available. We have provision. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have the opportunity to bend the knee to the Holy Spirit each and every morning, each and every day, receive His empowerment to do the walk. They didn't have supernatural empowerment to obey the Mosaic law. So, skipping on down to verse 16 through 19. Do you not know, are you ignorant, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves? <laughs> Guess what? When you bend the knee, that's what you're doing. And you're a slave from that point forward. Either. Notice, two options. This is an either or. It's not a both and. You cannot serve two masters. You're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in darkness at any moment of the day. For a born again believer, these are your only two choices. The unbeliever, <laughs> it's all flesh. It's all carnal. It's all darkness. Either of sin resulting in death, operational functional death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. It's one or the other. So you wake up each day and you say, all right, Lord, here I am. Presented as a slave to obedience. Fill me, empower me, motivate me. Guide me, direct me. And be actively obedient to, uh, to that empowerment. Because when you choose to sin, behind that is this decision to be a slave. Behind every sin. And the thing is, is you may choose to do a sin and not be allowed to. <laughs> oh, well. Because you say, hmm, and I want to do that. And so I make the decision that I'm going to do that, meaning I make the decision I'm going to be a slave to my sin nature. And then my sin nature may or may not want me to do that. He may have something else for me to do. I go carnal because I want to do sin A, and and turns out my sin nature uh, won't let me do sin A. He'll let me do sin B and C and D and E. He's got a long list of things he wants me to do. But I don't get to do sin A. Or maybe God the Father overrules. Say, changes the circumstances. I'm still carnal. I'm still sinful because I wanted to do it. But the Father was gracious and overruled. Jonah was out of fellowship for going to, uh, going to Joppa and then trying to sail to Tarshish. Now, he never made it to Tarshish, but he was still carnal. Because that's the decision he made. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you had become obedient from the heart in that form of teaching to which you were committed. You notice this obedience to 
righteousness, this obedience to the Holy Spirit, is a disciple's obedience. Because you become obedient to a form of teaching. You become obedient to being a true disciple. Just as you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Notice, having been freed from sin. This is the freedom Jesus promised when he said, You will know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Having become freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. This is the daily battle with sin. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weaknesses of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. See, when you're already on that path, which way does it go? (laughs) It's a one-way street and it's downhill steep. We talk about those cycles when you give over to sin and you're plunged into pride, which plunges into selfishness, which creates arrogance, which takes you into self-pity and all these other goofy things. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And that's a one-way street too. That's headed the right direction, resulting in sanctification. There's a positive result to functioning on that path. So, I love this chapter because it's so vivid. I think it, it, it unfolds what uh, Jesus was saying there in John 8. I think it's, uh, I did this with my teenagers. We, we, got, we were out in the grass and outside and we just got up out of our chairs and we stood there and then we, we took turns actually being the feudal uh, knight and the feudal lord. And uh, the, the knight had to bend the knee, had to drop down to a knee and bow their head and the Lord took a not a sword, but took a little tree branch stick thing and uh, dumbed him on his head. And, uh, you know, and then once he accepted the night service, uh, they were free to then command the feudal knight into doing whatever they wanted to do. And so some of the teenagers decided to make the other ones do jumping jacks or touch their nose or stick out their tongue. Or uh, I think Ethan Odell had to run around the church. And there was there was different things that they had to do. Well, if you're the knight, you got to do what your Lord tells you to do. And this is what happens when you decide you want to submit to that sin nature. The sin nature that was crucified on the cross. And you say, no, I like that sin nature. I want to bring him back. All right. Similar truth over in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. See, I think this is foundational. This is stuff we need to teach brand new believers, young, young believers in Christ. See, they may start to grow frustrated because they uh, they find that they've got sin issues that kind of remind them about their life before salvation, and then they may get discouraged and say, well, goodness, did I even get saved in the first place? And I don't think it's stuck. You ever been told that? You ever thought that? I've had uh, brand new baby believers tell me, you know what, I, th- I think I lost it. I think I'm back to the way I used to be. I, don't, I, don't. I say, stop right there, you can't lose it. You can't lose it. It's not that it didn't stick. It's stuck. It's eternal. But it did not include a, uh, a uh, personality transformation or a removal. If you're, uh, it removed the guilt from your sins, but you're still a sinner. You're still a sinner. You've got to grow in grace and knowledge and be transformed in your mind and your thinking. And uh, these, things, these things are a process. And that's hard. You know how hard that is? Yeah, because we're, we're a microwave civilization. We want it now. Think, man, if I was saved uh, a week ago, then I ought to be uh, ought to be a pastor this week. You know, I ought to be, <laughs> or whatever else. All right, Second Peter chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty. See, here's a problem when false teachers creep into a. Uh, is there some kind of weird noise outside? What is that? Oh, we got some blinking over there? Okay. I don't think that's related to the humming noise. Humming noise is coming from outside. Okay. Maybe it's a trumpet. It better be a loud trumpet because I'm getting more and more hard of hearing every day. That's something else. All right. These are springs without water. Mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Talking about false teachers that creep into assemblies. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. Notice the enticements are consistent with the sin nature, the fleshly desires. 
by sensuality. Notice, notice who the targets are, though. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. You know, a baby believer, you could call this, what Peter calls it anyway, uh, someone who has barely escaped. And it might be a little uncomfortable to use those terms, but Peter did in the scripture, right? I don't want to leave the impression that they're not quite as saved as everybody else, because they're just as saved as everybody else. They're going to go to heaven. They've got eternal life. They're just as saved. However, in, in this sense, in the sense of... Uh, they're not that saved and in the sense that they haven't been saved that long. They haven't had their thinking renewed very much, if at all. And it may be that if they've not been grounded under teaching, then their minds have not been renewed one bit. And since their minds have not been renewed one bit, what are their habits? What are their patterns? What are their philosophies and approaches to life? You know, a, a, a babe in Christ that hasn't been under teaching, uh, they're just as... Motivated as an unbeliever in a lot of ways. So uh, they entice those that have barely escaped from those who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Promising them freedom. But it's not the freedom Jesus promised. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, abide in my word, you will be my disciples. Uh, this, this is a false message that has another program. And freedom is defined in a lot of different ways by these shucksters, these uh, creeps, as Jude calls them. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So when you submit yourself to the sin nature, you're enslaved. All right. Uh, and it goes on. This is the dog returning to its own vomit, the sow washing in the mire, and the issues there. What has, see, any believer can plunge back into their sin nature. Uh, that might bother some folks, but it's the truth. The dog returns to its vomit, the sow to its mire. You don't lose your salvation, but you go back to the same behavior because you haven't grown. Your mind has not been renewed. All right, now. Again, you do not lose your salvation. These folks are going to heaven when they die. But they're going to get there at the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to watch everything go up in smoke as wood, hand, stubble with no production at all. Yet they themselves will be saved, yet so as through fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. All right, let's go back to Exodus now. And I want to remind you about the two kinds of slaves. Exodus 21, there's two kinds of slaves. Two kinds of slaves. The kind that are born, and then the kind that uh, voluntarily choose it. Now, there's all, I guess there's more than two, because then there's, there's a person that goes into it kind of involuntarily because of whatever. Uh, debts, oftentimes, or they're captured in terms of war, um, things like that. There were a lot of reasons why in the ancient world a person would be subject to slavery. Um, as I say, you could be captured in war, and as the spoils of war, you became uh, the slave property of the conquering people. Or uh, in a society, in some cases, debt was the only way to do it. In fact, even uh, debtors' prisons continued in many nations long after uh, slavery had been abolished in certain respects. All right, Exodus 21. Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave... Notice Hebrew slave. There were different standards for Hebrews and, and Gentiles because uh, obviously the Hebrew is one of God's chosen people. This is the covenant nation before the Lord. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. Remember, the seventh year was the Sabbath year of rest. It was the, it was, and then the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And so bond service among the Jews was limited to the six years with freedom on the seventh. All right. The um, some of this is is awkward for us because we don't function in a slave culture. Our nation did away with slavery and um, some of the different things there. In fact, I even find uh, and Larosa can add to this or, or disagree with me on this, but I find that some people are just terrified to even talk about it. Because they don't know what reaction is going to come up. They don't know how the other person's going to respond. They don't know what direction the conversation is going to go. 
And uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, white folks are talking with black folks and kind of walking on eggshells thinking, man, are they going to get mad at me if we even bring up the subject? How is this going to work? So um, in any event, I used to work with a fella at the sheriff's department. He said, you know what, I'm a, I'm a descendant of slaves and I thank God for it every day. He recognized that it, because his ancestors came to this country, they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says, if uh, my family might have stayed in Africa, I might be a, a demon worshiper. I might have gone Muslim or I might have done something else. And so he uh, had kind of an interesting view with uh, respect to his family and the salvation that was made possible. All right, well, let's look at this now. Notice, he goes out on the seventh year. Not only is a free man without payment, he doesn't have to be redeemed. He's set free. Not only that, but he also gets a, he gets a bonus. He's going to be sent out when we get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He actually gets a... Uh, uh, a stake uh, with which he can get started with. Now, if he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he was a single guy, then he's going to be single. If he was married, then uh, he and his wife are both going to be freed. Okay. But now, here's the thing. If he comes single and gets married while he's a slave, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. The wife and children don't belong to him. They belong to the, to the master. Okay, So if you're a single guy becoming a slave, you might think about that before you, uh, <laughs> before you accept your master's offer of, uh, of a wife. Really, if you're a slave, what business do you have getting married anyway? Now, let see. Now, here's the provision for this. And the slave undoubtedly anticipated this before. Um, accepting the wife and accepting the children and accepting this circumstance because he knew that after, you know, if, if he didn't want it, all he had to do was wait till the seventh year and then go get married. Notice, if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door of the door, uh, door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. All right, so here's a great big old earring thing going in. And uh, this is the voluntary slave. This is the one who says, you know what? I like my master. I want to stay here. Life under this master is better than the alternative. All right? And this was the uh, this was the provision. So think about that. Because when you're saved or when you're born, first of all, physically born, humanly born on the planet, you're an unbeliever. You're uh, you're born into slavery. You're a born slave. Didn't ask for it. Didn't deserve it. There you are. Uh, salvation delivers you out of that. You're out of the slave market of sin. But when you bend the knee once again and submit once again, when you voluntarily go back under personal subjection to slavery to the sin nature, you're quoting this verse almost by saying, I love my master. I love my sin nature. And the things my sin nature does for me, the wife and children, as it were, that my master provides. My sin nature does things for me. It provides carnal pleasure it provides whatever and that's the passing pleasures of sin and it's nothing of eternal value and more and more uh, it comes at a steeper and steeper cost and more and more there's strings attached but hey <laughs> what do you expect from an abusive relationship that's the nature of the sin nature so to me this is pretty vivid i love my master my wife and my children i will not go out as a free man when you decide to commit a sin, that's what you're saying. I love my sin nature and the things my sin nature gives me. I want to do this sin. I want to steal. I want to lie. I want to, I want to fornicate. I want to, whatever it is I want to do. I'm going to commit a personal sin. I'm saying, I love my sin nature. Why would I want to be free? <laughs> well, there's responsibilities with freedom, aren't there? All right. In any event, there's more with respect to this. Um, the, uh, there were always um, provisions for uh, grace and mercy. Of course, there was the redemption possibility for a slave. There are different stipulations for foreign slaves, Gentile slaves that are captured in war or somehow purchased. 
somehow obtained. They were not required to be released on the seventh year. And uh, other opportunities there. This gets a lot of mistreatment and uh, criticism in modern times as far as why would a loving God stipulate provisions for slavery in the ancient world. Things like that. I won't go into that today, but um, that's what it is. All right, point B. Slavery is inferior to sonship. Let's get back to John 8 and see what is this about freedom and slavery. Everyone who commits a sin is slave to sin. And then he says, you know what? Being a slave... Um, <laughs> That's, that's really, uh, how do you say this in church, on tape? <laughs> there's, there's other expressions you can use, but it's, it's a bummer. It's bad. Being a slave stinks. That's a good word, stinks. Being a slave stinks. Particularly when you can be a son. You want to be a son or do you want to be a slave? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. You can have slavery or you can have sonship. When he says you present yourself for obedience, you're going to be the obedient son or you're going to be the obedient slave to sin. Son to God, slave to sin. That's the contrast here. There's other passages talking about being slaves to God, but... This contrast is a son of God or a slave to sin. Distinctions. Slavery is inferior to sonship. And inferior is maybe too weak. Because slavery really stinks. It's inferior in position. It's also of inferior duration. This verse highlights both the position and the duration. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. You know, a, a slave is subject to removal. A slave is subject to uh, being sold. A slave is subject to um, uh, getting old. Now, when a son gets old, if, uh, say, you know, a generation passes and a father dies and a son gets old and a son steps into that generation and now the son is the homeowner and the son is the landowner the son is the lord of the of the property he's not out of the house he's in the house he becomes the house at that point as the head of the house but a slave what happens when the slave gets old what happens if a slave does does he inherit something and and what happens i'm talking about in just the the uh, the realities of why uh you even have slaves and if they're not if they're too old to do the work what do you do with them what do you do with them say again some of this is awkward to talk about just because we don't function in these realms and it's it's uh alien alien to our thinking and alien to our Standards of, of the gospel. But the, the, the truth is, is that the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. All right. But the son does. So what do you want to be? What do you want to be? Think about how cold and heartless. And, and maybe phrasing this verse in the most cold, heartless, uh, despicable cosmos way you can is the way to approach it. Because that's what sin, that's how sin treats you. That's how sin treats me. You know, when you submit yourself to the sin nature for obedience, does the sin nature really give a hoot about you? What does the sin nature care about itself, its own lusts? And, uh, you know, if, if you're not useful anymore, then what's the sin nature going to care for you? Uh, just like if to an unbelieving, tyrant, cruel slave owner, if the slave's not worth anything anymore, no point keeping it around. All right, so slavery is inferior to sonship, inferior in position, inferior in duration. Slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The one and only, the only and true emancipation is from, from sin is through the son. In John 8, 36. If the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. 
truly free. Free indeed. There's a fascinating idiom here with a participial adverb that's used, but I won't go into that. But it is a state of being, and it's a, it's a neat way of expressing it. It's the only freedom. The only in true indeed freedom. Now, there's some pseudo-freedoms. There's some phony baloney freedoms out there. There's some quasi-feel-good uh, kind of freedoms out there. Like, um, you know, the world's got their methods for uh, uh, their philosophies or psychologies, their uh, counseling uh, idea, their motivation to give freedom. For example, if you go to a secular uh, approach to uh, alcohol, for example, you go to a 12-step Cosmos Viewpoint program, and they offer freedom of a sort, in a way, kind of, sort of, to a point. But is it free indeed? Is it the truth of Jesus Christ? Is it the Christian way of life being regenerate in the spirit of your mind? See, they approach it. They come close to it. This higher power kind of thing. Well, put a name to it. Is it Jesus Christ? If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. But if it's an anonymous kind of generic quasi sort of higher power feel the force loot kind of thing, it's not setting you free from anything. Maybe for a season, maybe for a time. Or maybe it substitutes one form of slavery for another form of slavery. To where you become legalistic about it, you become uh, prideful about it. Uh, you're carrying your coin for a year, two years, ten years, twenty years. You're going to your sessions once a week, twice a week, five times a week, and bragging about you're uh, in your uh, group uh, sessions there. Is that a true freedom? What happens when you fall off that wagon? What happens when you stop hitting your 12-step meetings? What happens when you stop um, in your self-righteous legalistic pride about how well you're doing? Right back to self-pity again. You have to feed that ego for self-esteem um, to be an addiction solution. All right. Anyway, what I was illustrating is that the world has... Uh, what it puts forth as freedom answers, but they're not freedom answers. The cosmos wisdom would tell uh, an unhappy person, oh, well, just uh, go get a divorce. That's, that's your freedom. That's your happiness. It's a cosmos provision. But is it free indeed? Is it true freedom? Is it the blessings of what Jesus Christ would provide in the abundant life? Other forms, other escape. It's what the world calls freedom, the Bible calls idolatry or, or uh, psychological escapism. So the one and only true freedom. Now, it's interesting. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He goes on to say, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. I know that you're racially Jewish. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You're getting pretty harsh. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things that you have heard from your father. Now, this has him confused and a little bit upset. Because he just admitted that they were Jewish, that they that Abraham, they're descendants of Abraham. But then he also turns right around to say, we've got different fathers. Hmm. How's that work? <laughs> Because here they are, with their tremendous pride for being Jewish. And they say, what are we talking about? Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. <laughs> if you're sons of Abraham, you, you can't be doing this non-Abraham activity. Abraham did not hate Jesus Christ or try to put him to death. And so he says, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. He keeps approaching it again. They've got a different father. He's not talking about Abraham, and he's not talking about God the Father. And I think they're starting to get a little upset here. <laughs> you know, like, are you questioning who my father is? If, if, you, if you're questioning who my father is, then what are you saying about my mother? If you're talking about my mother, then that, them's fighting words, right? <laughs> you know, it's It's insulting. Both then and now, really. Although, nowadays, illegitimacy is not exactly shameful. They kind of celebrate different things. 
where was it? Those 17 girls took a pack to get pregnant and have babies in high school. And Good gracious. All right. We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. And so Jesus said to them, if God were your father, <laughs> here I go again. You know, if Abraham was your father, now it's if God were your father, you would love me. You would love me. We're going to talk about this here in a moment. We're going to talk about, in fact, next week. I'm out of time today. Uh, let me give you point D, and then we'll be able to introduce some paternity questions here. Despite their biological paternity, the unbelieving crowds manifested their diabolical paternity. You know what I mean by that? You're of your father the devil. So despite their biological paternity, as Jews, racially Jewish, the unbelieving crowds manifested their diabolical paternity as a contrast to Jesus Christ's theological paternity. And hopefully those terms should be pretty well self-defining. I love the fact, of course, in our present stewardship that our biological paternity is irrelevant. Our race, our gender, our economic background, nothing to do with salvation. We are born again in Christ, one body in Christ. We can be born from above and receive our paterological God the Father birthright. So from verse 37 down to verse 41a, Jesus is addressing paternity. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You have a biological paternity for being Jewish, yet you are rejecting the words of Jesus Christ and seeking to put him to death. He says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. So there's something beyond biology that, that he's dwelling on here. Because he's a Jew just like they are. So when he changes it from my father to your father there in verse 38, he's not talking biology. He's not talking genealogy in terms of human uh, background. He just took it from the earthly realm to the spiritual realm. Now, we all have earthly fathers. Every single one of us in this room. <laughs> I guarantee that. No, no one here was virgin born. All right. And there are no siblings in this room, so that means there are a total of nine different earthly fathers. But the nine of us share one heavenly father. So when he switched, they shared the same earthly father was Abraham. They were all racially Jewish. Sons of Abraham, sons of Isaac, sons of Jacob. And yet when he starts breaking it down between my father and your father, obviously something switched. He switched away from the earthly realm into the spiritual realm. He is from God the Father and they are serving their father the devil, which he gets very blunt with in verse 44. The murderer from the beginning, the liar from the beginning. And that's what they are, lying murderers. All right, we will come back to this because point five is the angry defense. And in the angry defense, we were not born of fornication. We find a very interesting commentary on their opinion on uh, Joseph and Mary and that whole Bethlehem engagement thing and the dating of uh, Jesus' birth and all the rest. So we'll talk about that somewhat. But we will mostly, we're going to focus on paternity. We're going to have paternity class next week. <laughs> Not like the world would have it, you know, where all these paternity tests to try to figure out who's, who's the father. I guess you can think of it that way. It's pretty self-evident who the father is based on the fruit that's being born. Based on who are you trying to please. Because born-again believers are supposed to be living a life consistent with pleasing their Heavenly Father. Unbelievers live a life consistent with pleasing uh, their father, the devil. And that's what this contrast uh, brings up. So we'll address this in point five, and then we will wrap up the chapter with point six. 
Thank you, Father, for our time together. Thank you for your faithfulness, for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together and to receive instruction. And, Father, I thank you that the Word of God is alive and powerful, that it is uh, provision for our daily walk. It is the empowerment, Father, that uh, the sin nature has no power over us. We're not compelled to commit acts of sin. Father, uh, we only do so when we choose to forsake the divine empowerment and we choose to submit to to the flesh to obey its lust. So, Father, um, make these scriptures very real to us. Guide us in the truth that we might make application for your Son's glory. He is worthy of our service. And, uh, Father, we want to be your fellow workers in glorifying your Son. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.